One word of advice would be to not try and kind of speed through the early stages of a career and really enjoy the process of learning through building. Welcome to Lawagon Live. Today, we are listening to Breathe Life founders Ian Jeffrey and Arach Chupani. Ian has been a marketer and entrepreneur in Montreal and Silicon Valley since 2001. He co-founded Founder Fuel, Canada's leading accelerator, as well as Montreal and Technology, Montreal's voice of the startup community. As for Arach, he started his career as a founding engineer at Outbox Technology. In 2014, Arach joined Primary.com founding CTO and helped build the brand's platform from the ground up. The launch was a hit and the company has since raised $40 million. Today, they are both working to redefine the insurance world with an innovative software platform and suite of modules that power the industry and empowers the consumer. Listen to their practical tips for aspiring entrepreneurs. So my name is Arash, co-founder and CTO at Breed Life. So I studied software engineering at Ecole Polytechnique de Montréal. Uh, the idea was always that I wanted to use engineering as a pathway to be an entrepreneur, to build companies. Um, so it was never kind of framed as engineering is the goal in itself. Um, and I made every decision in my career with that in mind. So I've been in startups the entire way. Um, the first company was based in Montreal. It's called Outbox Technology. It's still uh, out there and the code that I wrote is still powering ticket sales for Cirque du Soleil, Canadian, uh, the Montreal Canadiens, Evenco. Um, so the first experience was amazing. Uh, worked five years at a scaling up startup. Um, it was privately funded. Um, so over five years, the structure of growth was very, very disciplined. Uh, it wasn't kind of the venture backed roller coaster and kind of ag aggressive pace. Um, so after five years, I was looking at my surroundings and I was you know, eager to do a lot more faster. Um, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the next step. Uh, the company I was part of was really successful. Um, so it was really hard to find a peer um, that I could jump on board of and, and continue to have personal progress. So um, uh, at the time, the ecosystem, the world in which I wanted to evolve in terms of uh, 2010, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010 is when I was asking myself all these questions. Um, and in 2010, um, the, the ecosystem wasn't very developed um, in, in, in the city for consumer web kind of technology companies uh, and venture-backed companies. Um, so I ended up uh, having to go to New York um, to, to kind of pursue my dreams and my career and to, to find companies that had a little bit more means, a little bit more velocity, and, and that would give me the grounds to kind of continue picking up the tools that I thought I needed to be a good entrepreneur. Um, and so in the process, I uh, joined my first startup in, in 2011, uh, which is a date that's going to be interesting for, for um, kind of Ian and I getting to know each other's uh, reason. So I ended up moving to, to this company uh, as a senior engineer. And over four years, very gradually worked my way through different constellations of responsibilities that culminated in me becoming a CTO uh, of a fairly well-backed startup in a, in a phase of New York where, you know, there weren't that many companies raising, you know, 50, 60 million dollars. Um, and so, you know, did that for, for a couple of years at the CTO level and then wanted to do it again. So I joined another company as employee number one. Uh, to be as close to founder as possible. Uh, did that pretty effectively over a couple of years and then joined another company that was a little bit more mature, that was doing more like serious technology. Uh, did that for a year and at some point I was like, oh, I think I'm ready to build companies now. Um, and where do I want to do that, right? 
And the thought process was, let's, let's try and figure out how to do it in Montreal. Um, and that was the beginning of the return. Um, so at some point, I was trying to figure out, like, okay, I don't want to do this alone, so how do I do it with really smart people? So I asked the smartest people I know to introduce me to other smart people. And one of the first people that I met was Ian. And, um, and you know, fast forward a couple of years later, or just about, um, we've got this amazing company that's growing very well, and, and um, we're really proud of what we're doing every day, and it's a lot of fun. So that's kind of the origin story and how I got here. That's very nice. Thank you for sharing that. And we will get to a little more about the company later, but Ian, if you could share a little bit more about your background. Sure. So I've, uh, I'm born and raised here as well. I left, left Montreal twice, and I'll... I'll tell both stories, but I've been an entrepreneur since I was 12. Uh, I've always created my jobs. Uh, the first one was very basic, as you might imagine, at 12 years old. But uh, I've always created my work environments. Uh, and I, my, my first venture into tech was in 2006. Uh, left Montreal and I went to Silicon Valley for four years. Um, we, we built a company called Tiny Pictures, which built a product called Radar. And Radar was the very first photo sharing app on the planet, way before Instagram. In fact, uh, the founders of Instagram used to talk about us as their inspiration for, for what they've done. But we had the right vision uh, exactly at the wrong timing. Uh, 2006 was very, very difficult. Like the cameras on your phones were, were something new, right? And, and the cameras on them was, were VGA, not even one megapixel cameras. There was no iPhone. There was no cloud hosting. Uh, there was no mobile distribution. It was just, you know, we had the vision, uh, but way too early. Nonetheless, though, we, we raised some very smart money from uh, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote the famous book, uh, Crossing the Chasm. They led our A round. The, the, actually, the, our angel round was, was led by Reed Hoffman and Joey Ito. And uh, Jeffrey Moore led the A round. And then Tim Draper led the B round. So very, very smart money at the time. They had the vision that we had, uh, raised $13 million. We exited that company to uh, a company called Shutterfly, which is a public company. Um, was there for about a year and was really itching to get back to Montreal. Uh, my wife, who's from Montreal as well, she was there with me, of course. We had our first child there and it was just, you know, it was very difficult to be far out of family and stuff like that. Uh, so we came back to Montreal in 2010, uh, when you left, basically. And when I left the Valley, I, I thought I was coming back to Montreal to work for a large corporation. I didn't think anything was happening in the startup ecosystem. Uh, but I, through um, a few connections, got connected to Real Ventures, and they were really just getting started. It was their first fund and the first real venture capital model in the city, really. Uh, and then they, they had this idea of building an accelerator as a way to create the community and stimulate entrepreneurship in Montreal. And so I joined them, and I launched Founder Fuel. This was 2011. And so I did uh, the Founder Fuel program for three years and made 50 investments through that. And through that, met uh, a guy by the name of Daniel Robichaud, a very successful entrepreneur in Montreal. He was just starting Password Box. Um, and eventually, I joined Password Box as VP Product Marketing after three years of running Founder Fuel. And uh, a year later, we exited that company to Intel. Very, very successful ex exit. Uh, Montreal hadn't seen an exit like that in a long time. And under Intel, I took over the entire general management of, of, our, of our unit, which was at that point about 80 people. Um, and did that for a while. And that's where, and that part is important in the story because that's where I met uh, Sébastien Malherbe and Jean Kedahoud, who are the other two co-founders of, of Breathe Life. And so the, the, the three of us have been working together since 2014. And, uh, and when we met Arash through, uh, 
through my network, uh, it just clicked, right? He was exactly the type of person that we were looking for with the experience that we were looking for at scaled massive companies, you know, a lot of experience in the US. And, uh, and yeah, so we've been at it since January, 2018. Wow. It sounds like you guys just serendipitously kind of found each other and it just worked out. It was all calculated. All calculated. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Um, so now that we talked a little bit about how you guys met each other, kind of your background, could you tell us a little bit more about the company, why you founded it, if there was some sort of catalyst or inspiration for that? Sure. When we were at Intel, uh, Intel eventually sold our unit to a private equity firm. And this is an important part of the story because that private equity firm, after six months of the acquisition, shut down offices globally. And one of those was Montreal. And so overnight, um, I got a call from my boss, who was an EVP at Intel. And he's like, you know, we're shutting down Montreal. And three months from now, uh, everyone is out of a job. And so you need to wind, it, wind the operations down. Yeah. And so I started uh, working on that. And as I was doing that, my, my main priority was finding work for the team. Actually, I got sick uh, when, it, when the news hit. I got sick for, I got shingles for a week. Um, and then my main priority was to get work for the team. And so I put on a, um, a job fair for three months. Every lunch, uh, there was pe companies coming in and pitching, pitching what they're doing and trying to recruit the team. And as I was doing all this, I'm thinking, what am I going to do next, right? But I wasn't sure. Uh, but through that, uh, I eventually got connected to the folks at Biogram Ventures who have um, uh, a different model of investing, right? They, they come up with ideas related to fintech, health tech, insure tech. Uh, and, and once they have an idea that they've sort of de-risked a bit internally through their innovation team, they find experienced uh, people to take the idea, uh, they fund it, and you, you take off with that idea. Um, and so as I was reflecting about what I wanted to do, uh, I met the folks at Diagram, and what I knew is that I wanted to launch something new. I wanted the timing to be right for this opportunity. Uh, so the radar idea was way too early, and even the password box was quite quite early for its time. I wanted there to be a, a payment, right? As crazy as it sounds, I wanted someone to pay us for the service. I didn't want to build like a Facebook-type advertising thing or, or anything like that. That doesn't sound too crazy <clears throat> to get paid for doing well, stuff. There's different models, but... Okay. Oftentimes, the VCs are like, don't worry about making money. You can make money later, right? Yeah. Um, and the third thing was, which was the most important for me, was I wanted the thing I was going to build next to have a, an impact on, on people's lives or, or a potential impact on people's lives. And I've, because I have two boys, seven and 10, and I wanted to build something that could, you know, have a positive impact. Uh, I didn't want to build like some app to have Twitter followers or something basic like that. And so when they came to me and said, we want to build this thing around selling insurance, life insurance online, at first I was like, oh, shit, insurance? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, not super No, not exciting sexy. at all. Yeah. But when you do, when I did the, the, my due diligence and thinking through it and, and looking at the opportunity, it was actually checking those three boxes for yeah. me. And so that's what got me excited about doing it. Most importantly, the part about uh, doing good and... Um, and, and one of our, so Jean Kera, uh, actually he experienced it firsthand, uh, when his, when, it, when he was six, his father passed away. Uh, very sad story, of course, but it finishes well in the sense that they had great insurance. And so he continued going to private school. His mother kept the house. Like his life obviously was impacted by losing his father, but from a financial standpoint was not affected whatsoever. So he, he latched on really quickly to the opportunity as well. And, uh, and yeah, so that, that's, Long answer to a, a short question, but okay. very nice. Um, Arash, did you have anything to add to that? 
Um, I think the, the notion that the mission is important to us is very important. And the mission um, from day one has remained the same. Um, but our approach has changed dramatically. And, and that's pretty interesting, I think. Because uh, we came at this problem with um, an insight that people are not being pitched a certain product. And that's why they're not buying it. They're not being pitched because of a structural issue in the industry. And as a result, uh, a whole lot of people are underinsured, right? So that was the problem we're trying to solve. We initially wanted to be in the business of educating people as a brand and gradually telling them about their needs. Once they were ready to buy something, we would present them the right product. And you know, fast forward um, you know, 18 months later, we're a very different approach to the same problem. Um, and so that's what I wanted to add. Okay, nice. Um, and on that topic, you know, obviously as a startup, as a company, you have to continue to innovate. Where do you guys get your ideas? Where do you generate your creativity? Where do you find your inspiration? Um, so I think the best way to explain how we're figuring out what it is that we need to do is by talking about how things are being done today, right? So today, uh, about 70% of life insurance products are sold through paper, right? And typically it's an advisor that is sitting at a kitchen table with a potential client and trying to identify the needs of the client and filling out these papers. And then they'll take that paper and they'll give it to their assistant. And the assistant will take that piece of paper and, and add a bit of a bit of color on it, will fax it, uh, sorry, scan it or fax it into some insurance company, which will take it and print it and then yeah. add more things and then rescan it and then or fax it. Like it's just it's a giant mess. Yes. Right. So there are obvious things that can be done very quickly to fix that problem um, or to address that part of the problem, um, because the, the industry really hasn't changed in 100 years. It's the same method of distribution. Yeah. And it involves that advisor. It involves urine tests and and blood tests. And today, you know, all of you here, I mean, it's not hard to understand that there are, there are tons of sources of data that could do just as well to evaluate risk than, than a blood test or a urine test, right? There are just so many different sources of data that we have access to today that w weren't available 50 years ago, right? So there are, there are new ways to, to evaluate the risk of an individual. Yeah. And so we're, we're bringing all of that to the industry because the industry has been getting away with doing things they have for 100 years just because they can. And they've not been challenged to exactly. evolve. Right, they've had no reason to, to evolve because it's been working. And so that... That is a way for us to identify opportunities. Ross is reaching for, yeah. the, for the mic. Yeah, so I think the, like, I had a, a quick thought. Maybe we can ask the audience yeah. how many people have um, insurance. Do you have individual insurance? Yeah, how many people have life insurance? Woo! With your employer? Or so, yeah, is it individual life insurance that you got for yourself or is it through your job? So that's very important, right? Like, part of this uh, underinsured market believes that they are covered by their employer. Uh, or their group benefit, their, their life insurance that's powered by the employer. And that's actually, you know, if you get into the details of what that can kind of get you, um, really not a good setup. So if you have people depending on you, it's a, it's a, really, <laughs> it's a really difficult, that's our, that's our team, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, um, so, you know, most people think that you're covered by this. You know, it's typically one year salary, half of a year salary that's covered by that kind of benefit. So that doesn't really count. You don't go through the process, the pain that Ian was explaining. And so that was just to understand how many people have gone through the process. And the second question I have is, if you haven't, do you know how to get one? 
right? Like, where do you go and get life insurance today, right? You probably, I don't know, like, ask your parents. Google. Uncle. Uh, yeah, Google too. But it, it's a very different know. experience than everything else you're doing yeah. in life. So part, maybe explain why the, the insurance, the, the one you get from your employer isn't a good, good, good thing to have is because it's tied to your employer. So you, you get a coverage from your employer, you leave, you go to another employer, they may or may not have life insurance. And if they don't, then you're older than you were in the first place and getting insured. The older you are, the, the more expensive it is, right? So you're better off getting it with, when you're young because you get the price of when you're young and you keep that price for 20 years or whatever the term is. So the earlier you do it, the better. And if you do it without your employer, it's, it's the right thing to do. Nice. So I know um, Breathe Life is kind of focused on making sure everyone has insurance and kind of they can stay alive. Um, as, <laughs> as a company, do you have, you know, kind of an ethos about how you run the company, the kind of people you have in the company? Um, is that something that's super important to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we, we are very, very focused on bringing the right type of people in, in the company with, with very strong values. And if, if anyone has been paying attention, like we actually, I, I'm not a fan of like putting values on the wall and just, just to say that we have values. Yeah. So when we first set our values, we're like, well, how are we going to make, make sure that we're accountable for them? And so we blogged about each one of them. So first of all, they're on our website. You can read about what it means to us. Um, we, we do our yearly evaluations around them. Like we really, we do a lot of things to make sure that the people that, that, um, that are on the, on the team are the types of people that we want on the team and they're behaving the way that we want them to behave. And we think that's a very, very important uh, part of what we do. And, and maybe you want to talk about some of your initiatives as well. Yeah. So the, um, the notion of values came up um, organically in a conversation with one of our first employees. So number one or number two, depending on if you count when the first person decided to join Breed Life or their start date. Um, so um, the first woman on our team as well. And I was talking to her about the notion that so far all the applications I got for the engineering roles had male names on them and that I wasn't going to be successful at hiring a balanced team if I didn't see a balanced kind of in, input of, of, uh, of candidates. And, you know, what, what are we able to do as a company to make sure that we're doing things in a, in a good way uh, so that we can attract, you know, a more balanced kind of um, stream of, of applicants? Um, and so Emma, who's the person I'm referring to, uh, suggested that we kind of review our job description and that maybe highlighting our values would be an interesting thing to do in that context to say, hey, this is what we're about. We're able to like talk about it, codify it, and this is a welcoming place. You're going to do great here, and and that's going to maybe encourage more people um, to 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 want to join or to know that this is a good place for them. And then she's like, "Well, you know, surely you have values." And I was like, "I guess we have values. I don't know." <laughs> and so you know, we we went we sat down with the co-founders um, Emma and and our our. Um, our, uh, our friends at Diagram who helped us with hiring uh, early on. And, and we came up with a set of things that we could do um, to kind of present ourselves a little bit um, more thoughtfully so that we would get, uh, you know, more of society kind of want to apply. Um, we also reviewed kind of the words we used in, in the job descriptions and, and, and that hopefully impacted the kinds of people who wanted to join us and in the end, the team makeup, right? And so, you know, we, in addition to um, 
you know, really kind of emphasizing the values in our yearly evaluation and the way we think about kind of solving problems on a daily basis. Uh, it's worth noting that half of the team, uh, the, the co-founding team, has, has kids and has a very balanced life as a result of that. So we're not in this kind of culture of let's all work late, let's all kind of, you know, um, stay until midnight and have pizza for dinner. And, you know, some of the kind of earlier stage, like the, the, the kind of previous era of startup mythology. Yeah. So having half of the parents, actually, uh, half of the co-founding team have kids at home really gave us a pace of when you can get home, when you can leave the office. And it, I think, made, made sure that everyone felt that they could live their lives and also contribute to a startup. Um, and I think that's really not negligible. Um, if we, we add to that, if we add to that, we also all like make sure that we take vacations and we encourage that from, from the team. Nice. And who's our office manager and culture manager. So we're 28 people and you already have someone who in their title it's creating culture. And Caro, who's the HR and, and recruiting, we brought her on very, very early, way earlier than a typical startup would because we wanted to make sure that we had programs in place. And so some of those things that Arash mentioned, but also like every snack in the office is healthy. Uh, our team lunches is always healthy food. Like we're really trying to promote um, a good work environment and in that is work life as well. In addition to that, our team, I think, is... is uh, is aligned with our mission, right? Um, our mission to help uh, create a, a better protected society and a protect, like a society that, um, you know, I think um, has better support for people at the individual level, at the family level. But when we look at how we spend our dollars to be part of a community, to sponsor events, um, to be, you know, kind of um, part of society from like a company corporate perspective, um, we try to align that to our missions as well. Um, and what's really exciting is that our team members actually gravitate to that. So past weekend we had Pride Hacks. Um, yeah, I think and, some of the um, some people in the room actually were part of Pride Hacks, which is yep. really great. So you know, we we made sure that of all the events we could sponsor, this one was one that was well aligned with our values, and we thought we could genuinely help. Uh, so in addition to putting a little bit of money on the table, we also opened it up to our team to potentially be mentors and, and be involved. And we had, you know, someone that I didn't even know was going to kind of be so enthusiastic, uh, be part of this program. Um, and, and you know, the, the kind of overwhelming response from members of the team uh, is a, you know, very kind of good signal that by having kind of clear codified kind of mission and, and, and statement of values, And having people gravitate to that, it is likely that when we think we're going to support something, that it's not just us co-founders or us office and culture, but, yeah. you know, it ends up being a team-wide kind of activity. Awesome. Um, before we turn it over for questions, I just, I think one last thing, um, it'd be interesting to know your personal goals as entrepreneurs, and then if you have any advice for anyone in the audience as entrepreneurs. So one of my goals as an entrepreneur um, I think is to create the work environment and the opportunities that I wish I had. Um, and so, you know, going to college was uh, kind of a long experience, right? And, um, you know, I went to engineering school. It was very laborious and I couldn't wait to get to work. But my examples of what work was, was what my professors were talking about. And my professors at Ecole Polytechnique de Montréal wanted me to work at IBM, Microsoft, you know, big company. And you know, maybe after 20 years, get like a few promotions and, you know, that was going to be my future. And 
Um, you know, we didn't have quite as many examples of people who went out and built businesses and kind of um, had a different approach to how they built their career. And when I was in 2009, 10, uh, and 11 looking for my next role, my next opportunity, I was frustrated because there wasn't a lot to pick from, right? There's not a lot of ways for me at that time to contribute in, with the velocity, with the intention, with the passion that I had. And so as an entrepreneur, one of my goals is to create an environment that can satisfy my past self um, and give me opportunities and tools to go out and express myself and contribute. And, you know, like also there's kind of monetary satisfaction. All this stuff is also there, but it's really about being able to have a space that I can work in. That's number one. Number two, I think is, uh, you know, I'm very entrepreneurially kind of, you know, minded. And I really appreciate when companies generate an, a network of people who then go on and contribute later, either through their own companies or through helping other companies do amazing work. And so for me, one of the like, metrics of success would be how strong is the team that we build and how much impact they have within that, over the next 20, 30 years. Um, and, and you know, so far, I think we're going to have really outstanding outcomes from, from this early team. And it's only going to get more exponentially you know, stronger the more people we, we you know, bring into this uh, uh, group. And so that's kind of my secondary uh, you know, uh, ideal or, or, or role um, vision for, for, for being an entrepreneur. Um, I think the company's mission is super well aligned with doing good. So that by itself is like checks that box as yeah. well. So I think for me, um, One word of advice would be to not try and kind of speed through the early stages of a career and really enjoy the process of learning through building. Um, I'm assuming a lot of people here want to build um, from a coding perspective, let's say. Um, but there's other ways that you can have a craft. And, and not try and, you know, have an outcome in mind early on in the career, even though, like, we're all kind of doing things for a purpose and that purpose might be an outcome. But try and make sure that you enjoy the process as much as possible. Um, that's advice that was probably um, helpful for myself. I did spend quite, you know, quite a few years just focused on engineering and learning my craft and going through all these different steps. Um, and I would encourage people to kind of be patient about it, even though there's, you know, all the media that says you got to get rich quick, you got to get successful quick, and there's like 30 under 30 and, you know, 40 under 40 and, and all this stuff. And don't worry about that. And, and just, you know, enjoy the process, get really good at what you do and, um, and, and be helpful to others around you and, and not trying to kind of fast track everything. And make sure you have life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I'm 41, so I missed the 30 under 30 and the 40 under 40. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, so my, my main objective as an entrepreneur is really to to bring good to the world. Um, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think, I mean, that's really what drives me. And, you know, it, we can easily argue that what we were doing for radar with picture sharing doesn't, uh, doesn't make the world a better place. Right. Uh, but I think it's, it's a journey as, as you said. And, and to me today, that's, that's really what, what drives me. Um, I would say that, uh, I have two pieces of advice. The first one is I think it's really easy to get caught in the, in the hype of entrepreneurship, right? It's actually, it's, it's trendy, it's cool. And like, there are so many bad signals and, and bad things out there and people have the wrong impression of what it is. Like, um, one of the things that really irritates me is all this celebration around fundraising, mm -hmm. right? Like fundraising is not why you do it, but so many people are focused on fundraising, right? 
you build a business to do good and you may need capital, outside capital, you may not, and that's fine as long as you're doing something that brings good to the world. So don't get focused on the, on the negatives or, or what I perceive the negatives, like uh, don't get caught up in the, in the startup hype is what I would, what I would say. And, and there's just no easy, easy path, right? It's, it's always difficult, no matter what. And my second, my second, or actually I forgot my second motivator, which I wanted to say, which was when I, when I started Founder Fuel, my biggest motivator was to put Montreal on the map, right? I knew that things were starting to happen. I had been back for about a year and I saw Real Ventures and Inovia was getting started and Real Ventures, there was a bunch of stuff that was happening. And that was a big, big motiv motivator for me. And I think there are, we have tremendous potential in Montreal. Um, in 2010, no one was thinking about building a business. Today, you go to any of the universities and everyone's talking about starting a business. And that's great as long as they don't get caught up in, in the, startup, uh, the startup hype. Uh, the, the other piece I would, of advice I would say is, 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 a, is a thing that I believe in a lot, which is um, Brad Fell talk, talks about it all the time, but it's give before you get, right? Uh, and I wrote about this a while ago, but you know, even today... Uh, I, I'm super focused on, on building Breathe Life, but I, I like doing things like this. I encourage the team to do things in the community. I meet entrepreneurs at least once a week that are looking for advice. I'm taking time out of my own schedule to try to help each other out because it's so difficult. And I'm certainly not saying that I, I have the right answers, but having someone to speak to and, and talk about the things that you're, that you're going through and, and offering yourself uh, as one of those people is really, really valuable, both for you and the person that you're meeting, and, but, but never do it out of you know, re expecting a return, right? Um, and so he's, he always says, give before you get, and I think that is one of the big, big things that made uh, Silicon Valley what it is, right? It's everyone is just helping each other out with no expectations, and that, that brings tremendous value for everyone uh, very long-term, and I think uh, that's changing quite a bit in Montreal, but you know, five, 10 years ago, no one was doing that. And so that, that would be my big piece of advice is, you know, give before you get, and, um, and you know, it, it'll, you'll, you'll, you'll get tremendous value out of that. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank you guys for uh, the speak. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, uh, my question is actually regarding your business. Um, having been an um, on-the-road salesman of insurance myself, uh, I just kind of wanted to get your idea. Are you guys speaking to the insurance salesman? Have you gotten any feedback on um, how this interacts with the people and pretty much how um, it changes actually the industry? Yeah, so we, we didn't say much about what it is that we've built, right? Um, but Arash mentioned that we, we started out looking to effectively eliminate the broker right by selling directly to consumers but but that was that was that's what it was right eliminate the advisor from the mix and today we're we've taken a completely different position which is uh we're enabling the insurance carriers to to sell digitally whether that is in a self-serve model right where the consumer is buying on their own or whether that's through an advisor who's selling a more complex product to to a consumer um face to face right so so our, our software will do both and everything in between right so a consumer may start on their own and and the system will say you know what you actually you need to speak to an advisor because what you want is actually more complex than this simple product that we're that we're offering here and vice versa the advisor might say no, no you know really just go to this url and and buy this product you'll be fine and so we're in constant connection with the insurance carriers who are our clients and by default, uh, they're advisors, and we're talking to consumers as well. Like, 
We we need the the reality is today the there's a digital lead right. People are are looking on Google and researching and doing and trying to figure out about these products, and we we exist to capture that and convert them into a a a client for our clients, the insurance carriers. So we're always talking to them. Yeah, we have an advisor, uh, SRA, uh, yeah, a financial advisor as part of the team as well. So on that, I, you know, there was someone on the early kind of uh, on the early side of Breathe Life giving advice at first to to Ian about the industry, the state of the industry, and where the gaps are. Um, that person's on our as an investor on our team um, is involved sometimes in some of our pitches in the industry, and and we make sure that we have that perspective uh, close to the the founding team and close to the sales team. Um, and and it's interesting because. Um, you probably had this experience as someone who was out on the road and trying to sell insurance. If you're going to spend, you know, 15, 20 hours to go close a sale and it gives you, you know, a bounty, like a premium, um, you know, a, like a bonus that was not sufficiently large to make that a profitable sale, you're not going to try and repeat that again and again and again. And a lot of the people who we think are structurally underinsured are undersold because it's not a profitable process as an individual who's doing like all the legwork of educating someone, going out and meeting them at work, at the office, you know, after, you know, in the evening, whenever they're around to get them from, you know, a lead to a, a, someone who's ready to buy. Um, it's for people who have very limited needs that are the people who need the insurance the most, um, they're not a profitable target. So what happens is you go for people who have big needs, complex needs, where advice is very important. You can structure you know, a million-dollar policy and above. You can do it with someone who has like, a lot of assets, so you can like, maybe sell them other you know, things around it. That is someone who's profitable to sell to. And what ends up happening is the young family, you know, people who are buying their first homes, they're not getting the pitch. And our approach, while at first we were kind of, you know, really emphasizing a direct kind of educational spin on this, was really to take that market and bring the products to them in the best way possible, in a scalable way, in a sustainable way. And our thought was to keep the advisor in the loop, but only at the right time. So if people had needs that were requiring advice, that were requiring, you know, an expert to go through your real need analysis in depth, and that wasn't just like a, you know, a simple product that people could buy online. Even in our first iteration, we were thinking of looping in the advisor on the advice of the person on our team. Um, today, we just announced our advisor module, um, our advisor-driven module, which we're working with a Quebec-based insurer. Um, uh, and, and we're getting through them. Uh, really direct like feedback from ad uh, advisors on the field, um, and we've kind of been very methodical about launching this and building this with them in mind. Um, it's actually very, it's a lot easier to build for a specific persona like that than it has been to build things for you know consumers who may have different you know personas. Um, and so, our advisor-driven module um, is something that so far the feedback has been really positive. And what we want to do is we want to connect the entire thing, like Ian said. So no matter what you're buying and, and when and how, we have an end-to-end -end experience that makes sense for people that you know, gives them really great advice, really great kind of uh, frameworks for getting the right products. Um, but there's never a gap or a handoff from one system to another, right? Which is one of the many problems in the industry. Um, I was wondering, so when you started, 
you were pitched an idea, if I understand correctly. Yeah, and, diagram came to me with the idea of selling life insurance online. All right, and then you accepted that idea. And how did you um, build your team around that? How did you convince people to come on board? And um, I know you don't want to talk about funding. You said funding wasn't that important, but you need initial investment for that to get good people. I guess like Raj, with all his background, he wasn't going to work for free when he came onto your team. So what, um, unless, unless I, maybe. Are we paying you? <laughs> Actually, this is uh, like a, a short parenthesis, but one of our first, like the first three minutes of our meeting, the first meeting, um, I was aware that there was kind of a co-founding team being built. And my first criteria is that this is not a job. Like, I want to make sure that this is a legitimate co-founder role. And, and it was a short question and a short answer. But Ian, I think you, you, you addressed most of my concerns and most of the values that you have around building a, a partnership with the co-founders and, and looking for someone who's worried about the same things. And who's along for the ride, um, not someone who actually wants a job. So you express probably a lot of the same terminology and, and thought process, probably as someone who wanted at some point to make sure that what you were entering was a real co-founder kind of situation. Um, there's a lot of situations where you can be a co-founder, but it's just a, a title that you attach to the name, but you're not part of any strategic conversation. You're not part of worrying about payroll. You're not, you're not really in it. You're an right? executive co-founder. Exactly, right? And so in our case, that was the first gate that I, we needed to, to kind of um, cross. And, and paying me, for example, was not like part of the, the thought process as much as, you know, how are we structuring the team, the, the founding team? How is our VC involved? And what's the kind of management um, framework for this company? And so just to kind of jump on that. But Fundraising, I think, um, is, is a good topic to ask about. So continue your question. Well, actually, my question was, uh, what you said was is exactly my, my thought, my train of thought. Uh, have partners, have people that are in for the ride. But how do you get, um, how do you convince those people? And, and uh, where do you get the funds to at least make sure that they don't, you know, they don't starve? So a couple things. One is um, Jan, Seb, and, and I had just been through an exit which definitely helps from a cash flow perspective. Um, the other part is that you know, as part of Diagram, if, if, if you are quote unquote selected, if you join through this selection process, there is an initial investment, which is small, but nonetheless, there's an investment. So you don't start completely from scratch with no money in the bank. And so we had a couple things going for us. And you know, Arash was coming from New York City, salaries over there are different. Like there, there, there are many different things that, I'm sure gave us a bit more comfort than if we were starting from from uh, from scratch in the garage with with no no jobs or no no background. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, but w I guess the other part of what I, about building the team is um, you know I guess I've been back in Montreal since 2011 uh, 2010. Built Founder Fuel. I mean the network that I've been able to build around uh, around Founder Fuel mainly. Is, is huge. And a lot of the people that are on the team, like two of the, uh, there's an ex-founder field mentor that is our head of biz dev. Uh, two of the CEOs in which I invested in uh, through Founder Fuel are on the team. Emma that Araj mentioned before was a program manager that I hired in Founder Fuel. A lot of the people in the team, at least the original, uh, the original team on board uh, were people that 
were from our network, the founding team, and like our first engineers, the friends of Arash from Polytechnic. So a lot of um, building that first uh, group of individuals who join you is about the relationships that you've built and the trust that they have in you, that you have in them. And um, it's not just about about the payroll. Of course, we absolutely need to pay people, but there's more than just just the payroll, right? The vision, the relationship, the trust, all that stuff play a big role in in um, in, in, the, in your team and your founding team. I'll say something additional to that. Um, you know, I think when you build a company and you're not necessarily someone who's been building exactly that company in the past, a lot of your ability to go out and fundraise and convince people to join you, um, those are both kind of similar about different problems to solve. Um, they rely a lot on your credibility and the kind of network that you've built, as Ian said. And so in our journey, we've benefited, I think, dramatically from Ian's long-term presence in the, in, the, in the Montreal ecosystem, specifically deep relationships with a lot of the investors in town. Um, and so for us, fundraising was a very different story than someone who they don't know. They're meeting for the first time. So a lot of the investors we ended up going to pitch had a 10-year friendship with Ian, right? And they're like, they've been through a different, like a set of different experiences with him and they know what to expect. So almost, in, in his case, the checks were already written and it was like, does it fit our fund thesis? Does it fit kind of, um, you know, our, our, our areas of expertise? Is this a good fit for us from an investment perspective? Much less the, are you smart? Can I trust you? Are you going to do smart things with this money? So Ian basically spent, you know, a, a large part of his career setting us up for this fundraising activity. And we're benefiting from that as a co-founding team. I think in addition to that, the venture builder model that Diagram deploys helps us as founders really focus on building the business and knowing that there's a committed investor who's backing us. And so, um, you know, if you don't know about the program at Diagram, like, like, you know, check it out. It's, um, it's carefully thought out and, and it's, it's, you know, one of the many components that helped us, you know, go at, at fast, as fast as we've, we've gone. One, one thing I might say too about, because you, you touched on how I had deep relationships with the investors in the city and across Canada. I, one word of advice for entrepreneurs is if you are seeking to raise capital, uh, I think the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs do is they wait too long to build that relationship, right? You should absolutely be talking to investors like a year, two years, even longer before that, before you actually quote unquote need the money. Right, because part of what the entrepreneurs, uh, the investors, trying to do in in that dating phase is understand who you are, uh, you know, what you've done in the past, what's your vision, and and more importantly, they want to contribute to what you're doing, right? And so, if you put yourself in a situation where you know you've got money for the next three months, and you're like, all right, now I'm ready to fundraise. Well, guess what? It takes at least six months to raise venture capital. So you're much better off going to an investor. Uh, six months before you need money, but having that relationship for years, months and years prior to that, which is exactly what happened in, in our case, right? These people, I've known them since uh, almost 10 years now. And so when I got to meet them and, and started telling them about what we were doing way before we needed the money, they already knew me, right? So they already had, you know, the investors doing, they're de-risking opportunities, right? And the first checkbox is the founding team. So right away, I had a check right there. They knew, right? Done. Then, you know, is this person, can this person execute? Well, they saw what I built with Founder Fuel and other things. I was like, all right, done. 
So all those things that, that I've been working on for years were already cleared in their mind. So all they needed to wrap their head around is, you know, is this opportunity real? And have, do we have any signs of traction that we're getting there? And we did, so it went very, very fast. Just a quick follow-up. Did you meet, because uh, you're talking about the investors, did you meet them at first? Were they investors for you or were they friends no, and they, con they, connections? So, you know, uh, they were connections, right? So Inovia and Real Ventures and, and Luge, all the, uh, all the investors that are, that are writing real checks. Uh, I went to them way before I was fundraising, right? And right now we are not fundraising and we do not plan to be fundraising before at least half of uh, the next, uh, at least June of next year. I've already spoken to about 40 investors in the US just because, you know, they've been reaching out. Some of them I reached out and I'm just having that conversation. It's very uh, informal, but it's like, this is what we're doing. And then we touch base every once in a while. And when I'm ready or when I have significant traction, then I'll go back and say, now, you know, we're, we're raising now. And they've already had that relationship. And so it's, it's, I think investor, uh, sorry, entrepreneurs wait too long before they go to investors because the truth is you should not be going in there saying, I need your money, right? It's about, and, and you're dating too, right? Like you're trying to figure out, you know, do I want to get married with this person? Cause that's what, that's what's happening, right? I, well, I, I'm sorry. I guess I wasn't precise enough. Um, I wanted to know what was your in, like, how did you meet them initially through? Oh, it was all through Founder Fuel. All through Founder Fuel. Yep. All right. Thank you. So when we're talking about the value that Breathe Life provides, it seems like a lot of it is around optimization, right? Because you're taking this very old uh, kind of bureaucratic process and you're optimizing it using, you know, uh, digital technology. I'm wondering, beyond optimization, how else do you guys leverage uh, your technology to provide value to your clients? Um, I would start by maybe framing it differently. It's not necessarily optimization. It's sometimes unlocking things that are not possible today, right? Um, despite billions of dollars of investment, the sale process just doesn't happen a specific way. So you're not optimizing something that doesn't exist yet. So today, if you want to go buy life insurance in Canada, there's a handful of companies that do something, and what they do is really primitive, right? Uh, the ones that partner with us do something pretty nice, and in two years, it's going to be even more amazing, right? Um, one thing that we're enabling over time is we're taking a product that has been essentially built one size fits all, right? The insurance product lumps you, 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 whoever wants like that kind of product, they're going to look at stats, they're going to look at some assumptions around mortality that every company has, and, and they're going to create a product and then they're going to have a different team that's going to go out and market it. And they're going to have a marketing campaign that's going to attract the kind of risk. And, you know, you hope that these things kind of fall in the right place. And at the end of 30 years, you've made some profits, right? That's essentially how the industry has worked. When you have Breathe Life as part of the process, first of all, you're taking a product that is one size fits all. And you give yourself a, a chance to, to really bring it much closer to the individual. So you're taking a kind of... A, a product that swaps the, that 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 puts everyone in the same bucket, and you're giving yourself a chance to have much more precise products, insurance products, right? And that's not possible if you don't have an end-to-end -end point of view on your on your you know origination to um, contract um, on life insurance to mortality to you know kind of lapse and all these other things. And so, what we're creating is not only a way to go out and get like a new channel of sales that doesn't exist in the past, but in addition to that, I think we're, we're going to help 
insurance companies think about the insurance product itself differently and, and get not just to think about it differently, but to deploy it efficiently at scale in a responsible way, in an actuarially correct way, um, you know, in a way that was never possible before. Because again, it's like printed the products that you give to a salesperson that goes into their kitchen, right? That makes a lot of sense. I was wondering, could you expand a little bit on this personalization of insurance products? What kind of metrics do you use to personalize the product to the client? Yeah. Are you all kind of following along? <laughs> um, and so when we look at Breathe Life as a company and as an opportunity for investment, and by the way, like jump in please whenever you want. When we look at Breathe Life as an opportunity, um, you know, there's obviously the, the features that we build and um, the ability to do stuff that you couldn't do before, right? So we're putting together forms, we're putting together landing pages, widgets, and education tools, and all these functionality that helps you, you know, go from stranger to purchaser, happy buyer, and all, all of the things that support that, right? But what we're doing that is, I think, more extraordinary, and what leads to the answer to your question, is that we're creating a new data set that doesn't exist today, that matches how you got to meet this person online, what campaigns, what you know, profile, what segment, what element brought these people into the carrier's website, uh, onto your properties. What have they read and learned through your different properties? So content and signals of that nature. And then throughout that process, application layer data. So how quickly do you go through the process? How often do you come back to this website? What time of day are you doing this? What's your geography? All these things that don't exist because it's like on paper, we just see a form that comes in through the mail, it's been scanned a few times, so you don't know what the hell the sale process was and, and much about the person's context. And so what we're able to do is generate a whole new data layer that then unlocks a whole world of possibilities. And the answer, quite frankly, about how we use that data and how we influence the products is a lot of it is unknown and a lot of it is through kind of scientific method of trial and error. I might add is that we, we own that per carrier, right? Cross carrier, cross geography, cross insurance product globally, right? That data set has never existed before and we will own it for the entire industry, right? So the potential that that brings is really what gets the investor is extremely excited because that doesn't exist today, right? So when we have 20, 30, 50 carriers, imagine the power of that data and what that could do to radically change the insurance world. So, that, so what we're doing today is a means to an end, which is much bigger than, than just digitizing the experience, right? Hi, guys. Thanks for uh, talking so you know, openly and candidly about your process. It's great to hear. Um, recently, I took part in the um, summer school on bias and discrimination at Ivado. Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, given this brand new data set that you're creating, which by the way sounds absolutely fascinating, um, given that this new climate of uh, awareness about how these models can impact unintentional, unintentionally groups that you hadn't really considered uh, your product impacting, um, do you have uh, this in your radar? Is this on your radar? What kind of processes are you you know looking at to put in place already to get ahead of this problem absolutely maybe i don't know how technical we want to get but you know the the data set that we own is anonymized right so we do not know the name of the person and where they live and, and what they bought but we know that you know a man who's between 20 and 30 you know who lives somewhere in montreal bought this type of product so there's a lot of like we can't get away with with owning that type of information that information is owned by the individual 
And so the due diligence pro process of signing these types of deals with the insurance carriers and banks is, is unreal. Like it takes a lot of time because everyone's asking or thinking about things like, like you're bringing up now. And we need to make sure that, that we cannot in any way have a negative impact on, on the individual who's buying. Right. And so there's all kinds of data policies, um, security policies, you name it. And obviously we're, we're, we're compliance with complying with every of the types of, you know, HIPAA and whatever, all those things that exist because we need to, right. It's a cost of doing business. Um, one of our co-founders is a chief data officer. Um, he is um, this kind of mix of a marketing kind of aware. Um, you know, he's done a lot of kind of audience uh, building, conversion, optimization, all of that. And he's also done coding school and uh, knows how to code. And, and we're very fortunate to have him as a co-founder and to have someone who's thinking about data full time and the impact of data and the impact of the AI and machine learning that we're going to develop and the models that we're going to develop as part of the co-founding team. So the kind of awareness of data, I obviously think about it as well from the prism of being a CTO. We have somebody who's in the, in the title in his you know day-to-day -day kind of responsibility, that's 100% of what he does, right? Um, and so both of us are participants in the Montreal AI Ethics uh, meetup group where you know, we're not there every time, but uh, we try and be participating in, in the thought process around what it means to have um, you know, AI making decisions uh, about what kind of products people have access to or not. Like, what are the implications? Um, and then, okay, maybe it's not that black and white. Maybe it's just what the pricing model is for, for, for these uh, models. And, and, and one of the challenges is explainability. So when you have a product, uh, sorry, a model in which there's 100 different features, you're not exactly sure how somebody landed in some bucket how do you kind of go out and, and, and justify it from a moral and ethics perspective? And our thought process is to be maybe a little bit ahead of the law, meaning, you know, HIPAA, PIPIDA, like, sorry, um, a lot of things that are happening in Europe um, around uh, the, the individual's right to not only privacy, but also you can ask now in Europe, why did a decision get made by a machine uh, that, in that affects me? And companies now need to develop ways to illustrate the thought process or the mechanism that the algorithm took to give an outcome. Um, and so we don't have all the answers yet. We're like 18, 19 months old. It is on the radar. Two of the co-founders think about this very proactively. Um, one of us is thinking about this full time. I just hobby in there. Um, but, <laughs> but I think it is somewhere um, where not... I don't think there's yet a gold standard of like a, a technology company or a startup that has figured out how they can benefit from this technology and these, you know, kind of uh, approaches that are now available that weren't available before that are actually probably at scale good for society and do it in a responsible way. And so, um, you know, I have a, a huge appetite to learn more. Uh, we're trying to do stuff like anonymize our data and, and make sure that we're not kind of uh, you know, taking stances that are, you know, morally dubious. Um, but, but, you know, I think that that's something where we, nobody can claim that they're, they've solved it. Um, so that's our, that's our approach so far. That's our answer. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. 
If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.